turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, or if you want to follow along on the screen behind me, it uh, should be on the screen behind me as well. Again, we want to welcome you. Uh, I don't know if I introduced myself earlier when I was up here, but my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad that you are with us today. Uh, as Stephen said earlier, if you haven't had a chance to fill out a Connect card, we would love to connect with you or pray with you, uh, however way we can be a blessing to you. We're going to look at John chapter 1 this morning, and this is going to be kind of a standalone sermon, and we're starting a brand new series next week. Next week we'll be starting 1 Samuel. It's going to be a, an amazing time in the Old Testament. I'm excited about that series. But today we're going to be in John chapter 1, looking at verse 43 to 51. 43 to 51. Hear the reading of God's Word. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Come and see. Come and see. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. Make us a people who listen. Help us to not only be hearers, but doers of your word. And so we pray your spirit would bring about faith in our hearts to trust in you to become more and more like Christ as you transform our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and all you're doing in us. May you get all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. May you, you can be seated. For many of us, uh, if you show up in a new place, maybe a restaurant or a coffee shop or maybe just wherever you are, the first thing you might do is try to log into the Wi-Fi network. It's very common for us today. We've got a lot of devices, maybe a phone, a, a tablet or a laptop or whatever. And, and so the first thing you want to do is make sure you can get connected to the Wi-Fi. And usually the Wi-Fi is free and easy to access, right? We're just kind of used to that now in our modern age, but not at Yaya's Thai restaurant in San Antonio, Texas. Get this, a few years ago, Yaya's Thai restaurant decided they were going to make it a little harder to get onto the Wi-Fi network. And so there was this man who was there eating his lunch, and he decides he's going to try to log in. He looks for the password. You know, they'll often put the password posted somewhere in the restaurant on the wall or something. And he sees a piece of paper posted on the wall that says Wi-Fi password, and underneath the password, or underneath the sign, is a hard calculus math equation. I love it. This is the best. 
So basically, in order to get the Wi-Fi password, you had to solve the calculus math equation. And it was the kind of equation that has more uh, letters and Greek symbols than, you know, numbers. Like it was the kind that maybe if you had no idea what you were doing, you would just back away and say, I give up. But what he did was he decided to post it on social media. And this is how we know about it, because then it went viral. And he tagged it and just said, calling all math wizards. Calling all math wizards, I need the Wi-Fi password. And so people started, you know, pouring in with their answers and their guesses. And, you know, some of them were taking it serious. They tried to solve the problem and, and they're asking questions like, what does this mean and that mean? And, and they're trying to get feedback and other people just thought it was funny. And so some of the funny answers were, you know what? The answer is probably just password or it, you're going to solve this math equation. And then you're going to realize they don't even have Wi-Fi. Like, you know, this, this could be a joke. You don't even know what you're getting yourself into. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know if he ever got in to the Wi-Fi. We, we don't know what happened. But a lot of people guessed, and a lot of people were trying. But what, made, what it made me think of is this. I wonder why all that effort for a Wi-Fi password? I mean, it might have been a joke. It might have been, uh, you know, creative marketing, whatever you think it might be. But why all of that for a Wi-Fi password? I mean, why, why make it so complicated? Why make it so difficult? And I tell you that because we do that all the time in life. We especially do that in the church. We can overcomplicate things. People who are inside the church, you know, maybe you or, or someone else you know, we, we overcomplicate things where we make it more difficult than it really has to be. We use language that no one else uses, right? We, you come to church and you hear words that you don't hear anywhere else Monday through Saturday. Or, or we, we create these little cliques and these groups and we try to keep people out of our group because, you know, they're not like us. This, this is what I believe and this is who I voted for and this is what I look like and what I prefer, right? We try to create these groups that separate us, making it very complicated. Sometimes we try to do these things that, uh, you know, we create unspoken rules or unspoken, uh, uh, unwritten rules, I should say, that, that, you know, if somebody crosses the line, now all of a sudden, you know, they, they've stepped on a landmine and they can't be a part of our community. It's not like we put a, a calculus equation on the front door, but we might as well have. If you want in, solve the equation. But listen, it's not just people in the church that have this mentality of making it more complicated than it needs to be. It's also people outside the church. And maybe it's some of us here today. Like, you come and you're, you're exploring what it means to believe in Jesus, and, and, and you're not really sure what you believe or, or what you want to, to do with your relationship with God, but you've got all these assumptions about what it means to follow Jesus. You've got all these assumptions that you think, uh, you know, you got to get your life together. You got to have this figured out. You got to have that figured out. You got to stop doing this and you got to stop doing that. And then once I can do all those things, now I'm ready to kind of present my life to Jesus and maybe God will be happy. Maybe God will be impressed with all the work I've done on myself. But you've overcomplicated. You've made it more than it really had to be. And so we do it inside the church, we do it outside the church, we complicate it. And when we complicate it, we end up excluding people, keeping them out. And so we come to this story in John's gospel, and it speaks with this powerful simplicity. 
just this powerful simplicity. What I love about John's gospel is John makes it very clear what it means to follow Jesus and how to help other people follow Jesus. In fact, at the end of John's book, if you never read the Gospel of John, you get to the end and you find out what his purpose was in writing all of these stories. In chapter 20, he says this, this is his purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You hear that? Just that simple gospel presentation. He's saying, here is my purpose. I want you to believe in Jesus. And that in believing Jesus, nothing else, you're going to have life in his name. It's that simple. It's not complicated. And so that's what I want to ask today, just the next few moments we got together. uh, What does it mean for us to really know Jesus and how do we help other people to know him? Well, first it begins with an invitation. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want to look at is the invitation. The invitation. Look at verse 43. Let's jump in. Verse 43, it says, The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, this is in the opening chapter of John's gospel, but it's following on the heels of Jesus inviting people to follow him. Right, So Jesus has already started to call his first disciples to himself. And what's interesting is there's this word that keeps showing up, repeated over and over again. It's this word, found. Found. In fact, earlier in the story, uh, after following Jesus, Andrew goes to run and find, it says, his brother Peter. He tells Peter that they had found the Messiah, the promised one, right? And then Peter, when he hears that, he follows Jesus. And now we come to this next story, and it says that Jesus went and found Philip. And then what happens? Philip follows Jesus, right? Jesus says, follow me, and Philip follows him. And then what happens? Look at what it says. You guessed it. Philip goes to find someone, Nathaniel, in verse 45. It says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law also, and also the prophets wrote, right? So you see this pattern. What's happening is those who are found by Jesus go and find somebody to then be found by Jesus. You see that? The people who are found by Jesus go find somebody so that they can be found by Jesus. Or to put it more simply, found people find people. That's what it is. Found people go and find people. But when Philip finds Nathaniel, Nathaniel isn't as quick as all the others. Nathaniel says this in verse 46. It says, uh, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. I love this because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? You've been to maybe a Christmas service before, and we we sing about Bethlehem, but Jesus didn't grow up in Bethlehem. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth was like nowhere land. Literally, ancient maps didn't even have Nazareth on the map. Nazareth wasn't even mentioned in the entire Old Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament, not a single mention of Nazareth. Nazareth is never mentioned in Josephus' ancient histories of Israel, which which are like the fundamental histories of Israel, Nazareth never mentioned. I mean, this is the type of town you could drive through and not notice you were driving through a town, and that's Jesus' hometown. Jesus grew up in this rural, unknown, poor community. And so when Nathan hears about Jesus being from Nazareth, his first reaction isn't, oh, you found the Messiah? That's great. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Can anything good come from that poor community that no one even knows about? This is the best. Listen to how Philip responds. Philip doesn't argue with him. Philip doesn't try to prove him. Philip doesn't say, you know what? You have the wrong idea there. You know what Philip does? Philip says, you know what? Come and see. Come and see for yourself. He doesn't argue with him. He invites him. This, this is what I want you to hear. Following Jesus is an invitation, not an altercation. It's an invitation, not an altercation. In 2018, uh, the Barna Research Group did a study on the state of evangelism. Stick with me for a second in the church over the last 30 years. And uh, this is what they found. Lots of interesting data, but some of it stood out to me as I was looking over what it said. And, and basically, as we've seen in our culture, a rise in, in what you might call people who uh, self-identify as atheists or agnostic or, or nuns, which means you don't identify or, or, or affiliate with anybody, uh, the, the people who have self-identified that way is on the rise, but as that's been rising, there's been a steep decline on people who are sharing their faith. In other words, as the need for people to hear about Jesus has gone up, the people who are actually talking about Jesus has gone down. And this is what they found. Uh, in the last 30 years, so going back to 1993, the number of Christians who agreed with the statement that it's their responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus has gone down from 9 out of 10 Christians to 6 out of 10 Christians. That may not sound like a lot, but that means barely half of the church in America even believes they should share their faith about Jesus. Think about that. That's just the people who believe they should, not even the people who are. Think about why is that? Why is that? Why, why are we so resistant and so absent in talking about Jesus? Well, there's a lot of factors, right? And I can't get into all of them today. But one I want you to hear from this text today is I think we have the wrong mentality on what it means to actually share your faith. Many of us think that it's an altercation not an invitation. We think that it's a fight that I'm about to go into. And so we use language like that, like I'm about to go into war for evangelism, right? We talk about things like apologetics. Have you ever heard of that word? That's one of those fancy church words that people use. Apologetics means simply defending the faith. But listen to the tone of that. Defending the faith. Now, are there times where you need to defend the faith? Absolutely. Like There, there are times where, where you need to know what you believe and be able to defend what you believe. But if that becomes your primary framework, if that becomes the only way you think about evangelism, think about how that affects what you do. Because now you're on the defense. It's a battle. It's a war. I'm going into war, and I need to know what I believe, and I need to go against somebody so I can win. Right? The idea is I'm going to battle and the unbelievers, the people who don't know Jesus, they're the enemy. Do you see how that changes things? You see how now I'm in a fight stance. I'm ready for an altercation. I'm ready for you to say something wrong so I can attack you. I'm ready to defend Jesus as if Jesus needed defending. As if Jesus was some six-year-old boy who couldn't handle his own business. Listen, it's this altercation mentality that keeps many of us from talking about Jesus 
because most of us don't like fighting. I mean, there, there's the, the, the weird 10%, right? And they love that. They, they, they want to fight. They're, they're looking for someone to come at them about Jesus. But for the other 90% of people, we've excluded ourselves from evangelism because we think that what it means to evangelize is I have to go to fight with somebody about what they believe. And so we get ready, like, you know, I don't know if I can answer any questions, so I'm not, I'm not going to talk about Jesus. Who cares if you can answer their questions? Right? Or, or, or we're afraid that if I, if I seem mean, I'm, I might say something wrong, I might do something wrong. Listen, our goal is not to win in evangelism. The goal in sharing your faith is to love. Yes, yes. It's to love. Yes. Jesus is the one who wins. Yes. We are the ones who love. That's how it works, right? And so what are we for, right? Because so, so many times the church is not really known for, for what we're for. We're, we're known for what we're against. We are for the flourishing of all people. We are for everyone who doesn't know Jesus to have a life-transforming relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We are for everyone who is lost in hopelessness and despair to find the hope of the gospel in the only one who can meet those needs. That's what we're for. And so listen, what, what does Philip do? He just invites. He just simply invites people. What I love about Philip's story is if you go back, Philip, Philip just met Jesus. Like the day before. He's not, he didn't go to Bible college, he didn't go to seminary, he didn't even go to Sunday school. He, he doesn't know anything about Jesus except, hey, we found the one we're looking for, and I want you to come and see about him. Right? He, he doesn't know all the answers, he doesn't know all the tricks, he can't tell you the four spiritual laws, he can't walk you through a gospel outline, but he can tell you, Jesus has changed his life, and I want you to come see him. I want you to know the one that I've found. I want you to know him. And so he invites. He invites. Let me ask you this morning, who, who are you inviting? Not who are you fighting. Not, not, not who are you going into an altercation with so you can prove them wrong and expose how ignorant they are. Who are you inviting to Jesus? It might be your coworkers. It might be your friends. It might be neighbors. It could be anybody but this is what happens in the, in the New Testament. The people who are found by Jesus, they go and find people who need him, and they invite them. They invite them. And when there's an invitation from us, there's now this affirmation from Jesus. And this is the second point, the affirmation. Look at verse 47. Look at verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I love this because rather than rejecting Nathaniel for saying, oh, you know what, can anything good come from your hometown? He doesn't reject him. He rejoices over him. Like Jesus says, oh, this is the guy I've been looking for. I'm so excited. He rejoices over him because he loves his honesty. 
He loves his candor that, that he doesn't hold anything back, but he's really forthright and says, this, this is what I'm really thinking. This is what I'm really feeling. But there's actually more that he's, he's celebrating here. Jesus is actually making a play on words. And listen, follow me for a second. Israel wasn't just the name of their nation. Israel was actually the new name of their ancestor, Jacob. So if you know the Old Testament story, Jacob was one of their fathers. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Well, Jacob's name in Hebrew means deceiver, right? Deceiver. And then it was changed to Israel. And so what Jesus is saying, it's almost like this. Jesus, when he looks at Nathaniel, he's saying, here's an Israel with no more Jacob left, no, no more deception left, no, no more deceiving and lying and trying to trick into something. This is Israel in its purest form. Now, how did that name change happen? This is what we got to go back and look in Genesis chapter 32. If you don't know the story, Jacob, he was uh, running for his life. You know, he, he's the deceiver. So he's gotten into trouble with his brother. He stole his brother's birthright. He's on the run for his life from Esau. And so now as he's running for, for his life, uh, he, he gets a moment to kind of pause. And in the middle of the night, God meets with Jacob. God shows up and, and in person, Jacob sees him, but he sees him in the form of the angel of the Lord. And so God begins to wrestle with Jacob. And now when, when God is wrestling with Jacob, they're, they're kind of going back and forth, going at it all night. I mean, have you ever wrestled with God? You ever had one of those restless nights where you just can't go to sleep because you're wrestling with God over something that's happened in your life or something that's happened you know, in your past, whatever it is, you're wrestling with God and you just can't let it go. That's Jacob, but in person. And so now God is wrestling with him and he kind of lets Jacob feel like he's winning. But then, then God reminds him who he is and just, just with the slightest touch, touches his hip and it throws his hip out of socket. And now Jacob is, is realizing, I am weak and the Lord is strong, but he still doesn't let go. Jacob, what does he say? Remember the story? He holds on to him and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Until you bless me. He says to God, I, I'm not going anywhere. You can touch my hip. You can throw my hip out of the socket. I'm going to hold on to you until I have your fullness. And it's at that that God says, okay, now your name has changed. You know, you're no longer Jacob the deceiver. You are Israel. And the name Israel, get this, means he wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. This is, what, this is what Jesus is saying about Nathaniel. Nathaniel in John's gospel, follow me, is, he's becoming symbolic of us coming to God by wrestling. Look at verse 48. Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Right? In other words, Jesus didn't meet uh, Nathaniel's expectations. Nathaniel had expectations that the Messiah would be um, full of power and wealth and prestige and, and be from somewhere like Jerusalem, right? But he didn't meet those expectations. In fact, he blew them out of the water. When Nathaniel comes into contact with Jesus, now instead of what he thought the Messiah was going to be, he was so much more because he actually knew his heart. Nathaniel realizes quickly that this man knows me. And so he says, how do you know me? How, how do you know that I'm wrestling with God? How do you know what's going on in the depths of my heart? How do you know me? 
And Jesus is great. Jesus realizes that this, this is the moment that, that this man has been looking for. He's been wrestling with God, and he sees something in Nathaniel. What does he see? He sees a man wrestling until he finds him. Until he finds him. See, Jesus, listen, he, he affirms uh, honesty over certainty. Jesus affirms honesty over certainty. And many people, we, we wrongly assume that certainty is the goal. We assume that certainty is the goal. In other words, uh, people who don't have a relationship with God, often what's happening is we think we have to be certain first. We have to have certainty. We, we got to know without a shadow of a doubt what I believe and how it all works together. And I got to have all my answers figured out. I got to make sure this is in line and this is in line. But listen, if certainty is the goal, you're never going to come to God. And then people who have a relationship with God, we assume that certainty is the goal, and so we hide all of our doubts. We don't talk about them. We don't go there. We, we don't deal with what's really happening in our hearts because we believe that certainty is the goal, not honesty. If I'm honest, that, that's dangerous. i got to just pretend like I'm certain. But listen, the only person you're deceiving and that I'm deceiving is ourselves. This, this is how I'd put it. Self-deception is certainty without honesty. Self-deception is certainty without honesty. In other words, I am certain because I haven't been honest. I haven't really dealt with the issues that's going on in my life. And so when we're doubting God's goodness because we're going through suffering and we're going through a hard time, we're not willing to go there because we've got to pretend like we're certain. Or maybe we're doubting God's love because we've failed greatly and we've, we've messed up so big, but I'm not willing to deal with it because I've got I to gotta be certain. I can't be honest with God. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that our doubts are what keep us from God. But listen, Jesus doesn't praise Nathaniel's certainty. He praises his honesty. Or to put it another way, it's not your doubts that keep you from Jesus. It's your self-defeat, your self-deceit. It's not your doubts. It's, it's your self-deceit. What Jesus is inviting us into is to say this. He says, I want you to be honest. I want there to be no deceit. Just be honest. Take it to God. Say, you know what? I, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with how I can make sense of my life. I look over my past and it seems like everyone else seems to get ahead. And every time I do something right, it seems to get worse and worse and worse. And God, I, don't, I just don't understand. What am I doing wrong? Right? Or, or maybe you look over your life and you think, you know what? I don't understand how God could really love someone like me. I've messed up so many times. I've done things that I haven't even told anybody. I don't understand how, God, you could ever forgive me. Whatever it is, I don't know what you're doubting about. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I know this. What Jesus praises is when you take it to God. You take it out of deception, out of the darkness, and you actually deal with it. You say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. And it's in that honesty. There's transformation. When you take it to God and you say, just like Jacob, I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm not going to let go with you until you bless me. Until I have your fullness. Until I am satisfied that you have met with me and I have met with you. And I may walk away with a limp like Jacob did, but I'm going to know the living God. 
I'm going to know the living God. And listen, as we wrestle with God in our doubts, we have this comfort. Jesus sees us. He sees us. As he told Nathaniel, before we were ever considering him, he was knowing us. He's seen us in our darkest moments. He's seen us in our deepest sadness. He's seen us in our greatest failures. Right? When you were weeping through the night, he saw you. When you were wondering if you could make it another day, he saw you. When you were all alone and no one else understood, he saw you. You are not alone as you wrestle. He sees you. And because he sees you, he says there's, there's hope in your wrestling. So what's the good news for those who wrestle with God? There's a revelation of God. This is the last point, the revelation. Look at verse 49. The story ends like this. Listen, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. I love this because Jesus, uh, he, he affirms Nathanael, right? And then Nathanael turns right back around and affirms Jesus. Nathanael confesses faith. And so you see Nathanael is found. Right? Philip was found by Jesus. Now Philip goes and finds Nathanael. And now Nathanael is found by Jesus because Nathanael realizes this is the one that Philip was talking about. Jesus really is who he said he is. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. This is the Messiah. And when Jesus hears his faith, Jesus tells him, just wait and see. You think it's incredible that I know your heart and that I see you and I know you? Just wait and see. There, there's so much more for you to know about me. And he says there's going to be signs that are beyond. This is actually, if you read John's gospel, he's setting up for all the signs in John's gospel. There's seven signs that, that kind of shape the form of the gospel. Uh, but Jesus is setting it up right here. He says you're going to see incredible things, but there's going to be one incredible thing that's greater than all the others. And this is what he says in verse 51. It says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus' response might sound a little weird or strange to us or maybe a little cryptic, but what, what every Jewish listener would have quickly picked up on was Jesus was actually continuing his metaphor with Jacob. If you go back to Jacob's life, you see what Jesus is talking about is another thing that appears in Jacob's life that is parallel with Nathaniel's life. You've got to go back to Genesis chapter 28. And at this point, Jacob had just recently stole his brother's birthright. And so he was fresh on the run at this point. And he's running for his life, and, and his dad finds out that he had lied about it. And so his dad basically kicks him out of the home, and now Jacob's all on his own. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He doesn't know what to do with his life. And again, he falls asleep. God shows up to him in a dream, and Jacob sees in this dream a vision. Jacob sees a vision of a ladder, and he sees this ladder that's extending from earth all the way up to heaven. And as he sees this ladder, he notices there's angels coming up and down the ladder from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven, back and forth, back and forth. And then when he looks up higher up on the ladder, he sees the Lord himself. He sees heaven. He sees the glory of God, and then he awakes. Right? And as he, as he wakes up, 
uh, he notices what has happened, and this is what Jacob says. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You catch that? In other words, what Jacob is saying in the darkest moment of his life where where he's been removed from his family and he realizes his sin, he realizes what he's done, God meets him. God meets him in that place and he realizes God is here. God has come to seek me. Jacob wasn't seeking God. God was seeking Jacob. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. What you are experiencing is what Jacob experienced. You see me because I saw you. In other words, we see Jesus because he first saw us and came for us. He came for us. God has opened the heavens and come down in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus was saying to Nathaniel, this is what he's saying to us. He's saying, I am the greater, the truer Jacob's ladder. I am the way between God and humanity. I am the way for you to know the one that you've been wrestling with. In other words, what Jacob saw in a dream, you are seeing with your own eyes. God is in this place. God has come for you. See, the miracle of the gospel is that God, as he sees us in our sin, as he sees us in our brokenness, in our shame, he doesn't back away in disgust. He moves towards us in grace. He moves towards us. And just like Romans 5 says this, Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were wrecked and messed up, while everything was wrong, God says, I'm coming for you because I see you and I want you. And so Jesus didn't just come to be present with you. He, he came to be mediator for us. He, he's the only ladder to get to God is what he's saying. Why? Because he wrestled with God on the cross. He wrestled with God in our place. As he spent his final hours agonizing the cross that lay before him, he was wrestling with the Father, wrestling with the task that was before him. And he said to the Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. I'm not ready to bear it. But he knew this was the only way. And so he said, not my will, but yours be done. And more than a hip out of socket, Jesus gave his whole life. Jesus walked away from the cross, breathing his last breath as he wrestled with God in our place, taking to God our sin, right? He, he, he would carry our sin into his suffering. He would carry our pride into his pain. He would carry our fears into his faithful sacrifice. He was wrestling with God on the cross until he got our blessing until he opened up the heavens so that the heavens could come and pronounce grace upon grace. See, the simple blessing of the gospel is this. The simple blessing is this. Jesus made a way for you and I to have a relationship with God, a relationship with God that's not based on our own ability to understand everything, our own ability to have it all together. It's not a relationship with God where you say, you've got something and I've got something, let's, let's negotiate. This is a relationship with God where God says, I'm going to open the heavens and I'm going to come for you. And all I need you to do is receive the invitation. This is a relationship with God where it's simply invite and be invited. Invite and be invited. That, that, that's what it is to know God through Jesus. Jesus is saying, I've opened the heavens. You don't have to open the heavens. 
I've opened the way so that you can go from God to, to have a relationship from here to there. I am the ladder. I am the way. And the way you do that, the way you have a relationship, is to receive the invitation. He just says, come. Come and see. Come and see this one who can change everything about your life. Come and see this one who, who knows who you are knows you at the depths of your being, knows your worst days, your best days, knows your struggles, knows your doubts, and he still says, come. Come and see. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as you say to your bride, come. Come. We, we want to be in the presence of the one who came for us so that we could come to you. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you are the one who's been promised from ages ago. As we look back to Jacob's life and we see this one who wrestled with God and came away knowing the living God, and then we see Nathaniel who wrestled with God, confused and, and doubting, wondering if you really are who you say you are, and then coming to believe. And now we look at our own life, and we see our own wrestles, we see our own doubts, and you give the same invitation. Come. Come and see. And so, Lord, we want to respond in faith and repentance. We want to respond knowing that the one who's come for us can be found. Lord, help us to do that in our own response, but also, God, may we be people who help others find you. May we extend the invitation. May we go looking and finding and inviting that more people might know the hope of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.